Welcome to Co-Produce Care. Today we have with us Dan Lias. Dan is the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of uh, Southwest Academic Health Science Network, which is shortened to the AHSN. Um, and Dan is going to talk to us about what the AHSN is, um, a little bit about what its aims are, some of the in innovation that they're doing, and the ways that they're working with the wider community. So welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, so I didn't know about the AHSN before, I know I'm going to get this wrong every time, <laughs> the AHSN before I started investigating about what kind of services are out there and um, how we join health and science uh, with what's going on in, in communities. Uh, so it might be good to start off with explaining what is uh, the network mm. and how it came about. Sure. Um, well, it's nice to have the opportunity because it is confusing. I think a lot of people that I've worked with, in I've only been in my role in this organisation for about five months. Mm. It's the main job, basically, explaining to people what we do. Um, and then when they start to get it, it's very exciting. So, um, Academic Health Science Network, this is a national piece across England. There are 15 separate organisations okay. uh, that cover different geographies. So, I represent the South West one, and we're Devon, Cornwall and Somerset. Um, but we work very much as a network in partnership with each other and we deliver work um, on behalf of NHS England and NHS Improvement and then we also meet the needs locally within our health and care system. So we were kind of set up, if you like, in response to a challenge that happens in healthcare, it happens in social care as well, which is new ideas, when they are had, are very difficult to actually put into practice and implement. There's research that talks about um, an academic finding of a new way of working or of a new drug or a new product. It can actually take 15 years from the finding until the implementation is truly embedded. Yeah. And that's too slow. <laughs> We've yeah. got too many problems. We need to go faster. There's also the fact that implementation is often underfunded. Um, th the chance for people like us and, and, and people who are delivering care at the front line of having time to change what they do mm. when they're just dedicated to delivering great care it's really tough so we're there as a kind of a catalyst um, we help and we work alongside and we bring energy we bring a bit of time and we bring process and advice to take those new ways or those improved ways sometimes they're just the old way dusted off mm. because now's the right time to give it a chance to stick and, and to come into practice so people can deliver improvements without kind of just being burnt out in the process because mm. it's very hard, you know, we haven't got often the size of the workforce we actually need. Right, so how old is the AHSN? So we're entering our eighth year now. Okay, is that the southwest? Well, the whole, the whole piece, we all, we all started at the same time okay. um, and we've gone through different periods of licensing um, but luckily for us and partly because of the impact we're showing, uh, we've got the confidence of government that this is a useful additional piece in relation to the healthcare system mm. um, because we've been given tasks to implement certain initiatives right. and then we've been able to show that as a result of that, people's lives have, have benefited because we've improved safety, 
and we've decreased mortality in certain areas. Mm. So um, why was the AHSN created? Mm. Did it come out of a, a government review from something? Or? Yeah, so I, I, I'm not you know, fully um, briefed on it all, but the Lansley reviews right. uh, back at that time, yeah. that last big major top-down restructure of the NHS, I think we came about at that time, mm. and it was part of all of the thinking then, which was, I'd express it, I don't think others do, how do we just put a rocket up this? You know, we've got problems, and we need to restructure it, and, okay, so we've got clinical commissioning groups, we're gonna bring those in, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, and AHSNs came in then. Right. Now, they aren't, they weren't fully new then, because there's always been this consideration around, it was just a new incentive, if you like, to go, okay, in an area, let's consolidate partnerships, collaboration around innovation mm -hmm. um, for healthcare and do it through a national network that's locally uh, managed. Okay, so oh, you're trying to take science away from pure academia and implement it mm -hmm. and make sure it's funded. Yeah. Um, and also I found that in, I think the website of the uh, the whole national AHSM really mm. useful because mm. it had information, it had a map, yeah. it had um, sections about examples of innovation, mm. but also it had some videos. And one of the videos showed how, you know, if you are a doctor or if you are a GP mm. or if you're working in some area of health and you think you've got an idea, yeah. you can help those practitioners scale those ideas up. Yeah. Um, how does that work? Yeah, so that's one, one really important component of what we do. So um, entrepreneurs um, exist within the healthcare system and outside of mm. it. And we have two different approaches there. Um, but, but basically it's going to be a hard journey, you're going to go on. You've got a great idea, you've practiced a new way of working or you've come up with a new product or a new drug you've been working in, in, in maybe uh, within a university. And now you're going, well, I'd, I think this should be scaled up. Mm. That journey could be very tiring. It could be quite depressing at times. Doors could be closed on you. And therefore, the AHSNs exist to open those doors or, or find you the right ones. And that's going to involve a real understanding of the actual pipeline or the journey that innovation goes through. So in the early stages, we might just be allowing the person to um, validate that what they've got has the impact that they feel it is having, no. so that others are going to listen to them. Mm. I spent most, I, I'm not a clinician, I, I haven't worked in healthcare. I've always been in the sort of the housing side or in social care side. And then as a provider, I've been trying to convince healthcare to, to commission the services from organisations I've worked with. It's really hard, you know, they, the evidence bar sometimes really high wow. and they're the risk aversion. So an HSN helps people to put together the right evidence and to connect what they've got to what is actually needed. Mm. Is, 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 is the work um, that this person's doing really in need within their healthcare system. So we, we help them through that with advice, access to mentoring. There's also these great uh, accelerators which are you know intensive support from people um, who really know how to get a product scaled within our NHS. Mm. And uh, we open those doors for these individuals and, and also just, just give them the time and the confidence to keep going at yeah. times. 
sometimes you yeah you need to give them advice to say well actually you know your passion for this is 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 greater than the likelihood that this will be needed and then it's up to them to choose what they do next so if i am a gp or if i am a doc, junior doctor and i think i've got a great idea mm. how do i get in touch or get yeah. involved with some funding to scale up my idea so that website that you mentioned, uh, the National HSN Network, has mm -hmm. something linked off it called the Innovation Exchange. Yeah. That, through the map, allows you to find, okay, where's my local HSN? But also, your local HSN sometimes doesn't have all of the track record in your area. So because we're a network, we'll find you the right HSN with the right people to help you develop that. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's the Innovation Exchange, and you can just Google that. And, and, and get there and start that way. Great. Um, and I, in the introduction, I talked about working with communities. Is that right? Do you mm. re work with the wider community mm. that isn't necessarily health related? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think if we all just think what's the, what's the challenges that we're facing, they aren't going to be solved within healthcare. Mm. You know, healthcare is great, but it's something that happens once the problem has arisen. Most of our problems are about the fact that we're needing to go into hospital, well, why? Or now we're in hospital and we're needing to come out, well, we're stuck, why? And those answers sit predominantly within care first and the social care system. But the social care system itself is under pressure. And if you go back in time and you think what's worked in the past or what works in certain areas, well, it's often neighbourliness, if you're right. I don't know if that's the right word. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's community, it's, it's, it's connection, and it's um, looking out for one another, helping one another, it's having access to you know, those ways to well-being, such as relationships, such as the chance to exercise, such as good employment. Mm -hmm. All of these things that you know, Michael Marmot's been telling us about for years, the wider determinants. So if we're to actually have impact at scale, which is what we're here to do, HSNs are trying to really accelerate the uptake of innovation so that healthcare improves systematically and therefore dramatically. Pace and scale is often used. Well, we can do bits in hospitals, but we can actually do an awful lot more when we can help in the wider determinants. Mm. So uh, increasingly, we are being asked to support outing communities. It's quite complex though. Mm. Uh, sometimes, you know, healthcare is complex, but actually when you've got a new drug treatment, it's been through, let's say, the NICE system. You kind of know it's going to work. It's just a case of getting, it, like getting a team to, to take it up. When you're working out in a community where everything is so interconnected, it requires a real attention to what's going on and the impact that you're having by different interventions and real thought. Um, but it's the job and it's, 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 it gives us a chance to make sure we don't medicalise community as well. Really good. Mm. Good point. Um, you talked about impact. How well do you think the AHSN is doing in terms of impact? Scale of 1 to 10. Hmm. I'd say, well, we're more than five. Yeah. We've got a, we've got a way to go. Mm. Um, I was reading our, our kind of last year's report, if you like, and, and the graphs on the tasks that we've been given from our national programmes and the point at which um, we got involved and then the numbers of people that have benefited as a result of the, of the interventions. 
And all of them, or, or just about all of them, have got this kind of inflection point. And you can see that the HSNs have really helped to create more of an uptake of a certain initiative. And that initiative, or that drug, or that treatment, is evidenced and proven with a return on investment and a healthcare impact. So you can go, oh great, so we've got proof. And I think that proof is giving confidence to others that the, that the AHSNs need to continue. But the reason I wouldn't put it at the top is because um, that's impact within quite narrow areas, you know, a very proven intervention. Mm. And as I said, I think there's an urgency for what we've got to do. And therefore, we've got to get involved in the more complex, kind of messier areas where you can't be certain of the outcome, but you really need to try hard. And that isn't going to be shown on a graph, you know, because mm. this is a, what, what people talk about, where we work is a complex adaptive system. And therefore you don't draw it with a single line. You work intensively and you surface the learning continuously and you find out what's really working. Then you come up with a plan to, to spread that into other areas. Yeah, I think the whole idea of impact sometimes is quite difficult because what what is impact and impact will mean different things to different people. You talked about return on investment and the uptake of um, innovations or medication. Um, and then on the other side, you might have impact in terms of experiences for people who use those mm. medications. Um, yeah. It's how do you even measure that? You have to go out with a, a mission as soon as you start the innovation or the intervention yeah. to find out that impact and make sure that you report back on it. So is, is that a challenge? Yeah, it is. I think where you where that's taken me to thinking is uh, about social prescribing. Yeah. So we, we're doing in, in our HSN and, and a lot of the other HSNs more and more work in social prescribing because suddenly it's become kind of attractive to health. Um, we go, you know, if you've worked in community for many years, you kind of know this stuff's been going on for a long, long time, and it and, and it predates all of all of the current initiatives. Um, but because it comes in with the word prescribing, and because it's the money's channeled through health, actually the bar for evidence is really high, or or it's a health type bar mm. for impact. Well, actually, the the patient reported measure on this is is a lot more important in some of this. And yet we haven't yet got sophisticated enough within healthcare to routinely consider that and capture that. Instead, we're looking into the, the journals to see the research that's come out that's shown this, this and this. And actually, we're now increasingly, and before we started talking, um, you mentioned uh, Toby Lowe's work. And there's, there's, there's real room for the patient or the person defines the metric or the measure because if I come up with the measure for what is important in social prescribing for you and I go well are you in employment well, that possibly isn't really the point for you that isn't really going to connect with you and uh, and then I'm now driven to get you into employment because that's the measure whereas when you self kind of suggest what the measure is you will come up with something quite different and we may well find that employment follows. Yeah. But actually there was something important for you first. And so social prescribing sits under the banner of personalised healthcare. And actually within that policy agenda, I think they get it. They fully get that this is about what for you is important. So within AHSNs, we have to essentially kind of hold this space 
long enough to make this argument that actually the measurements that we're currently imposing upon this are possibly the measurements that relate to a different paradigm. Mm -hmm. And where society is at the moment and the, the trends that are going on are a lot about you know, kind of the transition from old power to new power, the, the transition from facts to what works personally, what's, a, what's the story here, let's understand it. And AHSNs have a role in order to, to work in that space, to, to surface learning um, at moments when you, know, you don't necessarily have proof right now, because with a lot of learning, with a lot of investigation, with time, you can make that argument very coherently. Mm -hmm. But in the moment, uh, right now, you might not be able to. Mm -hmm. And we have that job to, to keep people who feel like they are measured by impact in a very um, specific way happy enough to give us a bit more time while this is practiced at the front line? Yeah, I mean, having the right measures is really important because it will determine the behaviours. So like you said, with employment, if that's your measure, then people will be pushing people for employment, but that might not be right for that person. Why do you think we've got into that situation where we're, we're so disconnected from the lived experiences of the people that, we're, that this is all about? It's a big question. I think. I've worked for a long time in what some people would call housing. But when I was working in it, I was thinking, well, this is about homes. And that seems the same thing. But I live in a home, but the people I was supporting were in housing. And so we, we demarcate, we go into work and we do something, but then we go home and we live our lives. And so we professionalize life in a way, and we look at everything through the lens of the workplace. But the workplace over, many years has become more like a um, like a machine to control as opposed to life which is more organic mm. and so it's really it, it feels quite sad that actually in my job I might come up with the answer that it's about jobs in my life I might come up with the answer it's about happiness I go into work and I forget about that and I go I need a target around jobs because I'm supposing that's what the person above me thinks mm and hierarchy and, and, and sort of organisational growth and bureaucracy and, and pressure and an economy driven or a country driven by economy, by GDPR, etc. Mm. It, it kind of takes you down that route continuously. Mm. So, you know, I don't know what the answer is for anybody else, but for me, it's, it, it's we have to stop the sort of the othering that happens continuously yeah. when we put ourselves into boxes mm. and you have to bring your whole self to work and you have to allow, as is my role with a senior person within an organisation, others to bring their whole selves to work mm. so that they can go, well, what are you talking about jobs for? This is really about me being happy and, and, and having friendship. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And connect back to that. So I'm really interested with the language that you use, the whole self, bring your whole self to work. Uh, we interviewed Helen Sanderson and she mentioned that and she yeah. mentioned about self-managed teams. Um, and she talks about the importance of seeing the whole person. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. But also the idea of co-production. Do you think that that could have a big impact on the way that you are assessing how, how impactful your work is? Mm, yeah. The, the co-production is 
more and more essential in what we do. Um, we've just started a piece of work, for example, in, I'm going to use a bit of jargon, um, in our STP, or Sustainability yeah. and Transformation Partnership down in Devon. And we've kind of really firmly suggested it has to be co-produced. Because the danger when it's not is when we're all under pressure in our jobs and you're wanting to make a change, that without the support and the buy-in of many people, it's never going to really work. If you want systematic change at a large scale, you're actually going to need a continued amount of goodwill. So co-production is a way to get there. Um, it's also a way to break down the historical power divides, whereby I'm senior so I know best, which is often rubbish. Um, I might be able to create the environment where I can get other people to be at their best because I'm senior, but that's probably the limit of it. So by taking co-production very seriously, you stand the chance of getting a diversity of thought and then coming up with something different that you wouldn't have got before. And that kind of, if our problems are so great, mm. and yet we do feel like we go around in circles. You know, in the time that I've been in and around the care and health sector, I've already felt like two or three cycles of, oh, we're coming back to something that we've done before, but not with any real confidence we're going to get a different result. Mm. So co-production gives you the chance of changing the ingredients. Great. And have you had any um, feedback from the new approach to co-production, mm. negative or positive? Well, we ran, um, a colleague and I ran a workshop the other day for... Uh, 10 clinical directors of primary care networks and these are people new in to post and they've got a real leadership role but they have to work out how they're going to work with each other mm. between them I think in the room they probably represented 35 GP practices and by using that sort of approach the feedback that we got was there was a high level of trust there was a high level of freedom to express views and as a result, people felt listened to. So my feeling from that workshop, therefore, is their chances of doing some good stuff in the future is going to be improved. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how many meetings we've all been in where we leave it going, well, that was just him talking at me, <laughs> you know? And, and, and actually, I had something to say, but I felt, what's the point? And we lost that voice as a result. So, yeah, co-production and other forms of, um, like Helen talks about, you know, sort of flattening out hierarchy, um, democratising decision-making, absolutely essential. And I wouldn't mind finding out a little bit more about how you got into health and social care. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that you had in your, in your background? Maybe you were, care some people were a carer or mm -hmm. some people were just interested in the area mm -hmm. or just really wanted to work in it. How, how did you find your way into the sector? Yeah, I wouldn't. It wasn't as deliberate um, as it could have been. I suppose I did psychology as an undergrad, um, and that made me very interested um, in human behaviour. Um, and but I I kind of got frustrated that um, my my route would just be do a PhD, mm. and I was like, well, I need to get into the real world. <laughs> Firstly, I needed some cash, but also I just, just felt itchy about that. So then I went straight into a job at Wiltshire Council. And that was straight into an adult social care department. That was just, that was a job that was available. So through that, I worked in um, the strategy that they were developing at that time for older people services. 
then I worked in the housing teams around the supporting people teams that used to exist around housing related support. And I left there, my last role I had there was as a joint mental health commissioner for Wiltshire. Um, which was a bit of a farce really because I was the commissioner of health and care services for mental health. I'd never been a provider. So well, what did I really know? I was, I was working with providers, essentially making decisions about whether they get funding or not. I didn't know how to run a business. They knew how to run the business. Um, so I went to become a provider and I worked in a drugs and alcohol charity, um, which is real coalface stuff really. Um, and, and showed me just, you know, just how tough it is to run a small business. Um, then I um, went to quite a large housing association, but that had a very large um, care and support arm, where we actually had home care team across, and the home care team grew. I, I was supporting them to get new business. We covered um, three or four counties. We had one of the largest uh, contracts in the country at the time for home care. Um, we ran extra care services, so we had registered care as well as a lot of supporting people work. And then we had Home Improvement Agency there. And that led me into a charity in Bristol. And in, the, in all of those areas, as I said earlier, I was kind of going, um, trying to work with health and trying to work with local government back to say, well, we've got something that can benefit you and having to do a business case and find funding. When I went to Bristol, I started representing the voluntary sector directly in the decision-making of the healthcare system. And it was at that point that I started to get quite interested about academic health science networks because I thought, well, I've been around all of the edges of this and I'm having a little bit of an impact on healthcare. And if I, I'm driven by sort of reducing inequality and having a scale of impact, I'm not really going to achieve as much as I feel like I might be able to unless I start to get into healthcare. Mm. But every job that came up in the NHS, I was, everyone would say, I'm not sure that's the culture in which you'll thrive. Whereas an academic health um, science network sits on the edge. I mean, it's a neutral territory that has the trust of the NHS, but isn't embedded deep within it. So you have access, but you aren't running a hospital. You have that independence. Yeah. yeah. We're a not-for-profit. We're actually a company limited by guarantee. We're not an NHS organisation. And yet our members are NHS organisations and universities. And in time, possibly, local government organisations as well. That's so unique. It's a very different business model than what I expected. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel that because you've got such a wide experience, I mean, that's got to be quite unique to have gone from commissioning um, and then having your uh, experience also as provider and dealing with the ideas of how to actually run services of business, mm -hmm. um, but also keeping in mind the impact with society and the people that are, are being supported by services. With all of that put together, do you find some frustrations with the way that you have to work within uh, mm. an organisation like the um, AHSM? Well, it depends whether you let it be a frustration, really. Mm. Um, I think it comes down to where you're going to place your energy, because you could, you could just get frustrated because um, there are so many barriers. And yet, if we kind of think again, the people who you're talking to, who or who are asking things that you could interpret as barriers, well, they're just people as well. And actually, when you get into the discussion and you have the time, they we kind of all want the same thing. We just feel sort of constrained. Mm. 
So the opportunity to do things differently, they feel as much as I do. It's just we need to have time to have the discussion. And I'm really lucky in this job that I get to repeatedly speak to people. And, and it's all deliberate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's how do I, how do, if I truly believe that innovation isn't going to happen unless the culture and the environment is, it's almost like the ground has to be fertile for it. So we've got teams doing stuff and they're really helping. What's my role or what's the role of leaders in our organization is, is to ensure that that ground is fertile. And, and to do that, actually you're really needing to influence others who could just kind of really badly affect it or they could massively enable it. So you spend your time in those discussions and you try and bit by bit get there. Really just joining the dots and bringing people together yeah. who wouldn't normally sit in the same room um, to, to We do a lot of innovation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in quite the, in all of the different uh, impacts and innovation projects that you're doing. Have you got an example locally of something that's been really successful? Mm. So um, I mentioned earlier about social prescribing, and I think there's some we're having some significant success there. Um, so I'll maybe do a little bit on that, and then maybe one with care homes, mm, yeah, because I think that fits this world. So the social prescribing success we're having is there are brilliant pockets of GP practices are completely embracing it, and and others will embrace it or they're trying, it's just the challenges of being in a GP practice these days, it's just, it just gets tougher and tougher. Mm. It's like in care, you know, the workforce pressures are relentless. Those that have, have managed to embrace social prescribing and make it fully part of what they're doing, you're hearing these GPs talk about, well, I was going to leave my job, but I'm not now, because I feel like I'm having a real impact. So our work there is to understand what's going on, and to give them the time to reflect on what's going on, not just at a very simplistic level, but but what were the ingredients that created the condition that made that GP want to stay in their job? And then what were the conditions that enabled that end user, if you like, the person who benefited from the social prescribing that happened to feel that their life was improved as a result? So we work, the academic piece, if you like, is we work very closely with um, universities and researchers. So which universities do you work with? So in our patch, we've got Exeter University, we've got Plymouth University. Okay. Um, and partly because of the way the South West is, we've got a lot of focus within those universities on wider determinants and on social factors. So there's some very good people doing some detailed understanding of what, what's going on in that process. And then what, what we do is we seek to take those insights and it comes back to this idea of a recipe to a certain extent. What is going on that's great? What are the ingredients? How do those ingredients need to go together in what order? And which ones of them are essential and which ones are optional? So that as you look from one area, and it might be just a population of 30 to 50,000, mm. and you look across your region and you go, whoa, there's so many of these pockets. How are we going to transfer it? Well, we've understood this, this recipe well enough. And then our job is to go where it's, people are willing and to support them to understand that recipe and to main, make their own little variations because locally there will be different circumstances um, so that they can then go on that journey. And we give them the confidence, we give them the time. Sometimes we're bringing in money. Sometimes we have some of our money 
increasingly rare, mm. um, to just accelerate that journey for them. Mm. Then we can wrap around, we do evaluation, real world evaluation or realist evaluation to, to surface the learning as they're doing it so that they can then adjust. So you haven't, if you go back to those ingredients, you haven't burned your cake before you know that it's ruined. Yeah. Essentially, you've gone, oh, okay, I've got a sense I need to turn the oven down and, and help them in the moment. What, what are you finding, or the research is finding in your area to be the um, determinants, the mm. widest part determinants of health? So if you take social prescribing, what we've really found is that it's so much more about the community connection than it is about the... The, the route from the person coming to the GP, getting the social prescriber and going out. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about what's, what's going on in that community and what does that community really need so that the social prescribing options now reflect back what is needed as opposed to, you know, oh, I've got a clever person sat in a GP surgery that knows what I need or I've got a link worker who can listen to me and find what I need and just go and create it. Actually, if you're close enough to the community and you're constantly listening and, and that involves a very broad set of people. And so when you say you, the person or the surgery? The... So the people who are listening, if you like, and understanding is partly us and partly other researchers. Okay. Um, but then actually increasingly it's those really engaged clinical directors or GPs who are really championing this. Mm. So one of the things we've done is we we've enabled them through some funding to have a bit of spare time in their day because the GP doesn't have any spare time. So that they can cover some shifts while they themselves do that learning and go, okay, what is really working here? And it's essentially just slowing down a little bit. Our world was too fast. Do you find that very early days of the primary care networks, mm. which is like the framework for this is all coming under with mm. the um, social prescribing, and having link workers who will connect the surgery, the GP surgery, with the wider community and what's going out happening in the wider mm. community. When I think of social prescribing, I think of um, it might be support groups, mm. or it might be yoga, or it might mm. be some kind of fitness. Is that is that right? Is mm. that the kind of social prescribing that people are doing? Mm. Um, and is it is it being uh, successful? Or is it too early to tell? Well, so. There was a recent report from the World Health Organization actually on so many factors um, that are being successful in social prescribing, which are in the area that you've just talked about. Mm. Arts, sports, hobbies, etc. And really being able to show a connection to evidence. So yes, I think it's being successful. But to a sense that we didn't really need to know that. We kind of didn't know that anyway. You know, Those of us who are more privileged uh, have chosen for a long time to take part in exercise, sport, cultural activities. Mm. And, and we get positive reinforcement from that. So I don't think that's the real question, is whether, it's whether those activities are something that somebody who is facing challenge and multiple challenge, and often that is induced by complexity and poverty, feels that any of that is accessible to them, or even appropriate at this point in time. Mm. And is the person who's advising them the sort of person that they want to listen to? or that they would go and seek to find out. And that's where you have to really understand what's going on in that interdynamic, because you can set up loads of social prescribing, you could fund loads of groups, but if the population in that community were feeling so alienated against institutions, if 
if those groups were associated with those institutions, they wouldn't turn up. So our work has to go deeper and really, you, just, you have to speak to and spend time with the people who ultimately will be referred through. And for some reason over recent years, because of cuts, um, what's happened in social services in terms of cuts and higher criteria for assessment, what's happened in community health, what's happened in, in mental health services, nobody's spending real time with the people who end up needing the services until they turn up in A&E or until they turn up in the GP surgery. So our work over the coming years in social prescribing is diversifying now into out, I don't want to say outreach, but, but just going out and speaking to people and understanding what they might need and what they might like. And you mentioned Helen earlier, that's proper personalised care. That's what are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? Okay, well, how do we design around that then? And that's the exciting area for me. That sounds like plausible. It sounds like a brilliant bit of a no-brainer. Mm. Uh, sometimes people say when you talk about engagement and going out to people and finding out what they really think, mm. they just say, well, it's really hard. Those are really hard to reach people. That's the usual. Do you have a plan of how you're going to make this engagement meaningful? Mm. Um. So if we go back to co-production, so we're about to start a project exactly in this area. Um, and you have options when you're about to start something. You can overthink mm. and you can come up with your plan. Or you can convene people who have lived experience, people who have tried projects and learned, people whose minds are in this place and thinking what's the best way. And you can create an environment where they feel able to talk to each other and then we all feel able to test some things together. And the addition that an AHSN brings to that, as well as holding that space, is that we also have some great teams with access to data. So population health management is a new jargon word for what we used to think of as just public health. Um, it's really understanding the people in your community at a level of barrier and challenge. So if we use our data to go, who is not coming? And what do we know about them first? Mm. What are the clusters and the patterns? Okay, so now we've understood that there's a group of, let's say men, between 20 and 35, who routinely are not using GP practices, but when we hear about them, it's too late. And this could be connected to suicide. Okay, well, what's our appropriate approach to outreach? You've really got to consider that mm. before you start doing it. And what we've got to do is we've got to go, what, has, what have we done in the past? And what, what's currently not working? So medicalized approaches, uh, blanket contract approaches, uh, putting people into roles without the support around them so that they aren't, when they go to meet with people and they are faced with the complexity and the challenge, they themselves are overwhelmed, giving the workload, giving them too much workload all of these factors and go, okay, well, as we design this, let's try and design those things out at the start. We won't get it all right. So let's have somebody with us at all points learning with us. And then let's reflect. Now, what that is, that's going to annoy some people because it's going to slow everything down. But our problems are too big to carry on rushing ahead doing the same stuff. So that's what we seek to do in, in our local work 
is we hold the space for long enough to allow a different approach to happen that makes the most of the different voices. Perfect. Um, so there's a lot of talk around integration of health and social care. Um, and it'd be interesting to find out what the interface is between health and social care for the AHSN. And are you helping to bridge the two in any way? Mm. Well, I hope we are. Um, we find ourselves in that interface all of the time. And actually, we witness increasing amount of partnership working at a very senior level between leaders in health and leaders in social care. But it's, it's still a big, um, it's a big divide for them to go across because there's so many barriers to it, some of which are just basic IT barriers. But uh, there's so many culturally beneficial pieces about that integration happening because a lot of the progressive thought that will unleash the real potential in the healthcare workforce sits in the cultural approach that people in care and in, in social care take. Um, or that they've been trained in. Because supporting the public in a way which allows them to take some risk, which sees them as adults, and which is side by side as opposed to done to, is so much part of the future of, 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 of supporting people to be well. Because we just don't have enough resources to continue to kind of, you need to do this, you need to do this, and then find out that they aren't. So for a certain amount of the population, we need them to be quite activated in um, their own wellness. But to do that, we have to engage them as adults without any ways in which they might feel patronised. And unfortunately, when we've got very highly qualified people within the medical environment, sometimes the population just feels like, well, my only answer is to do what this person's told me. And sometimes this person doesn't have the time, or we don't allow them to have the time to get into a conversation. Mm. A lot of the answers are actually being done or are being dealt with in social care and in care. You know, personalised conversations, shared decision tools, those things are all transferable to the healthcare environment. So we are trying to help that diffusion across those two. Um, and there are quite a few projects now that come across our desk where actually they're you, you could, if you wanted to, say about social care, but it's all healthcare, really, because it's prevention. Um, so care homes might, might be an example. Should I, should I talk about that? Yeah, uh, but I just want to pick up on the fact that a lot of the rhetoric sometimes is around how can we upskill social care? How can mm. we make social care look more like NHS or health? And it's interesting that you have pinpointed how actually social care has a lot that it can teach yeah. the way that health operates because we're moving to a, a rhetoric and dialogue about personalised care, which social care does really well. So um, that, yeah. was a, that was a really interesting point. But I guess if you've got any examples how you've worked with social care, um, you were talking earlier about a care home example. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a great guy down in Devon called George Coxon and he, I think he's got two or maybe three care homes mm. and they're all CQC rated outstanding. And he's then worked with other people um, who are also equally um, well-rated by CQC and, and, and run homes, independent providers, and they formed into a bit of a collaborative. And so we've helped them with that journey to give them some support, to help them find some evidence to behind what they're doing. And then we are now working with them to observe really what's going on there, um, to surface 
you know, what sits behind a very high quality care home. Um, because I'm not sure the CQC system truly gets there. It objectifies a lot of it. Um, and as I said earlier, our job is to spread great work. And care homes, I mean, they're absolutely essential to healthcare. Because if they're very insufficient, then people who are ready for discharge but can't go home haven't got somewhere to go. But also, if they aren't working well, then you get repeated admissions. And a, a, a well-run care home actually has people living for longer than maybe their diagnosis in hospital might have given them because they're just very happy in that environment. They feel safe and it's, it, it's, it's, it works for them. So what sits behind that? And it's some of the learning that, that George has uncovered is, is about just how satisfied the staff feel. He and his team are creating a homely environment within a care home, and that just makes a significant difference. Mm. But how do you do that? Well, you listen to the people and you design around them, and you really connect to them. And how do you do that? Well, you have to really care about the connection and, and the, believe that that person is really see them for a person and really value them. Now that sounds also damn obvious, but in our effort, I think, to um, scale, we've come up with, right, we just need bigger care homes, right, we need more of them, or we need large extra care facilities, we need retirement villages. And with, it's, all, it's not inevitable, but as you scale anything, there's a risk that you lose something in that journey. And what you can lose is connection and that real piece that, that George is achieving. So if we spend enough time seeking to understand that, then we can try and help um, advise people why, yes, it might look cost effective on your business case to go for a 60 bedded unit. But actually, if you think about the number of years in wellness that somebody might have in a very homely environment when the staff are feeling so happy with their job and very supported and not overwhelmed by the, the lack of staffing, etc., is probably going to pay off in the long run to, to, to also support these independent providers. So yeah, it's our job to try and, again, help George with that discussion and his colleagues with that discussion. Have you seen any examples of what George is doing there? which is coming out through the evidence of, of how he's come to be such a quality provider. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things George does is he, he has a peer support network with the other care homes. And that feels like it's absolutely essential. You know, how are you continually discussing and continually learning and continually sharing practice? And it can be a very lonely environment. So. These are just, these aren't, there is no kind of silver bullet with this. Um, but if you, so, well, I suppose, I suppose what I'd say is his attention or their attention to culture, to the cultural environment, is the single biggest innovation going. That, that is the reason why things are different or better. Because if, if something happens that feels like it's out of kilter with their value set, well, then they'll all feel it and they'll all seek to go, okay, well, let's, let's discuss that and improve it. As opposed to um, that going unnoticed and another thing going unnoticed. And then actually standards or environment have changed almost without anybody properly noticing because it was gradual. So that's one of the part we talked earlier about psychological safety. Mm -hmm. yeah. so that's one, one thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
is there anything else that you feel that they they've if collaborating with other providers which i think is really important and sometimes people are so busy doing the work of functioning as a care provider that you can just miss that part um a psychological safety of your staff so that they feel that they can come with issues and you can nip things in the bud yeah. early um homeliness um concentrating on the person which i think is one of those phrases that we just say yeah. but we don't really know what that means maybe it's partly because well that's going to change for everybody so a different person is going to find a different thing important to them so can you ever quantify that or yeah, yeah. you know have a definition of it i don't know well yeah so george um he uh, he talks about time and i think again i i, I talked earlier you gotta slow things down really and and so how would you how would you truly understand the person well you're gonna have to spend time and you have to want to and you're gonna have to listen well actually you've only got so many staff on that shift and uh, you're only getting paid so much money and actually uh, this is probably your livelihood and it might be tied to your own house and your own mortgage you know so it's a really dangerous place to be so it's really important that we emphasize or we find the sort of the time that people have to care and the space that they have to do that gets rated as highly as other approaches which are equally important such as how we're dealing with medication in the home, how we're dealing with health and safety issues, etc., etc. Unfortunately, I'm uh, currently that isn't as emphasised as much as as it could be. Do you think that's because it's not necessarily all down to the provider? It's more to do with commissioning. Yeah, being a former commissioner, I'd say commissioning's got a lot to answer for. Um, it's really unfortunate um, that we haven't made the most of it. Um, but it's, com it's quite understandable why it's happened in, in such ways. So there will be great examples of very well put together outcome-based service specifications that found a provider that was truly already on this journey before they won that tender. But unfortunately, and I've won a lot of tenders in business development over the years, there are, it's not that hard to win a contract and actually to put together something that shows that you are the right provider. But are you truly is a big question and commissioning has not, um, it's not been sophisticated enough to truly find the match. You know, when, when, when I think about it, so we're about to have a new chief executive, that journey that we've gone on is very deep to find a fit. You know, the real fit between that individual and this organisation, you know, you, you search very broadly, you go through multiple stages and then you go, is everybody happy with this individual? Does that individual want it? Will they take it? Have we got everything right? Yes. And yet you still have a probationary period. That isn't how it works in commissioning. We don't go to that depth of process and thought. Right. And, and we don't really map these conditions across. We kind of take that off the shelf, we copy a bit of that, and then we go through a process which is procurement orientated, which kind of cuts out any learning in the process. We're suddenly in a window where basically you can ask questions, but you're only going to get pretty simplistic answers back, and we aren't going to change the spec. Uh, so it's 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 got a lot to answer for. But. So in a sense, I always feel like you're saying the culture isn't just about the culture of the provider. Mm. It's not just about the culture of health. Mm. 
Mm. It's about the culture of the whole mm. system because yeah. a lot of the time there's pressures to for providers to, to use uh, values-based recruitment mm. or to change standards in a certain way. But mm. if from what you're saying, if we could actually get the whole system mm. to work that way, from commissioning, maybe even to you know government, because mm. obviously they have to work within certain rules, yeah. certain regulations, so law. If we can get the whole, recognise what is the whole, what is the different mm. parts, the ecosystem that supports that individual and the whole values of that system mm. rather than individual yeah. bodies, because exactly. all interconnects. No, what does. providers do will be determined mm. with what people are commissioning them to do. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. it works. Yeah. yeah. And so that's perfect. And, that is, and we are, we're lucky because we're kind of neutral in that yeah. highly complex system and we attract people who want to come to work with us who who kind of get that they kind of they're fed up of kind of doing little bits around the edges and they go actually this is systemic and therefore we have to have a hat on that really thinks almost in a helicopter we have to be looking down and going okay how are these things all interconnected and before we start to mess about to realize that one thing will cause another effect and therefore let's learn continuously and seek to just continually improve mm. um, and uh, that's why I really like the job. Yeah. Um, so if I'm working in social care how would I get involved with the AHSN? Right so if you're in social care and I'm going to do a couple of scenarios for you so that's a very broad field for a start and everyone's different so let's imagine you're in a team and you've got challenges but you're kind of you're feeling like, well, I'm overworked, or I'm tired, or I've, I just need to prioritise the care that I'm doing. But you have that sense that it could be better, or it could be different. Maybe you're lacking learning, maybe you want to know about different ways, or that things are done in different parts of the country. Or you want to release some time of your team to take part in learning. Well, then AHSN might be able to help in those areas. It might be able to help you attract in the funding that backfills some staff. We have very good connections with those bodies that already exist. So in healthcare, we have Health Education England. So they're known about, but people don't fully understand how they could help them. But because of our partnership, we do. So we can solve something which feels like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. We can solve it quite quick because we're very connected. And we can do the same in social care. So that's one thing, you, you need help just to get space. The other is you might have a great idea. And actually you might have tested your idea. So you can use the jargon of you've prototyped it, or you've tested it, or you've piloted it. You might have done those things, but you haven't got the evidence of the impact, or you don't know how to now scale that up. Maybe you're in a regional team, and you've only done this in one district and now you want to move it into the whole county and then you want to move it across the counties. Like I said earlier, that's going to be complex and it's going to be challenging. Well, we have something called um, our Spread Academy, which is a three and a half day course that people come, come on, which is all about unleashing the ability of staff and people to affect wide scale change. We give them the tools to understand almost like how you build a social movement to a certain extent. How do you take a great idea and then get it affecting a lot of people. We bring in experts from the US that have been leading in this area. We have a lot of expertise and we help them come up with their own plans. So it might be that you want to enroll on one of our spread academies. If you've got a good idea but you haven't 
tested it, then we have something called quality improvement training, which has similarities to other form of training, but it works very well within a healthcare setting. So if what you're doing, you might need to evidence to health, maybe you're in continuing healthcare or, or you're, you're doing something in and around medication and you want to make an adjustment, well, we've got quality improvement training and we, we could help people with that. And connections and, and I, had, I had a police officer in our office yesterday and we were talking about mental health and how 40% of the workload of his team is spent on dealing with people in the community who've got mental health needs. Mm -hmm. Only 28 to 30% of their time is spent on crime. And he was then coming to us for help, and in the space of an hour and a half, because of who we are, I managed to introduce him to four people, all of whom could help him. We had somebody in who works on suicide prevention. We've got a project which is called um, Serenity Integrated Mentoring, which is about helping police officers to know how to interact with people with significant mental health when they've needed to, to go and see them so that they don't escalate the situation. Um, and we could just, I just made these connections and he was like, well, this would have taken me a year. Mm -hmm. So an AHSN is, is, is a hub through which you can access that complexity. Um, and we're fortunate, we're only 40 people, but we're 40 people with deep system knowledge um, is there any plans to grow the AHSM as more people mm. know about you? I think to, to a certain extent, some of our growth is constrained by whether um, departments within government feel like this is the right approach. Okay. And I think, I think there is increasing evidence of our impact that make them more and more confident. And I'm in more and more discussions about, oh, could we use the AHSM for that? So I feel quite confident about that. I also think that the real growth will happen at the local level. It will happen when the local authority, social care, um, GPs, PCNs come to us and say, can you help with this? Then we'll just get busier and busier. Really, we shouldn't need to exist. All of what we do should be able to be done within health and social care itself. It's just the way in which we manage that means that there is no time. Um, to be in the helicopter, to look over the whole system and to think how to change it. Um, so we might cease to exist if everything becomes fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Will everything become fine? <laughs> no, it won't. No, more people are going to know about you with this video going out. Um, and there's, there's a lot I'm learning that I didn't realise that the AHSN did. I almost... I can always see what you are, but I don't know what you are, but I can mm. understand what you are, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it feels like you're still developing how you're impacting, but there's so much to do when you're bringing things together. Mm. Um, and it's really, really important work. And it's, I think it's a, a great thing that you're doing. Um, I wonder whether you find in some of like the development uh, projects that you're doing, like the Spread Academy, mm. that helping people, especially in social care, to understand the language mm of how to make that connection with people in health. To mm. say, well, I've got a really good idea, or I think we can work in this way, but I can't, I can explain it to you, but you won't really understand the potential because I'm not speaking your language. Mm. So those type of programs, I think, could be really yeah. useful for people mm. to connect. Because integration, we think we just need to talk more, but if we're not talking the same language, mm. sometimes it's just lost in translation. Yeah. Translation, yeah, mm. so we do a lot of that translation. But really, again, I, I feel like I'm getting a bit boring, but you, we just got to slow down because you're in social care and I'm in healthcare. 
but we can have a perfectly good conversation about our lives outside of work. Mm -hmm. So let's start there, <laughs> you know, let's connect as people and then build from our commonality, as opposed to jumping right in. I'm in so many meetings where people haven't even read the papers and we're spending most of the meeting wasting time reiterating things that people haven't had time to understand. And, and that's partly because the trust isn't there. Mm. If we all trusted each other, well actually, I trust you to make that decision, you crack on sort of thing. I don't need to hold you fully to account. And I think until we spend more time getting to know each other, the other things won't flow. Um, so yeah, that's an increasing mm. role of us. Trust, yeah, mm. very good point. Um, I think we've pretty much come to the end. I usually ask for cactus questions mm. from people. We haven't had any cactus questions. I did come up with a couple. Mm. Um, one that I'm asking a lot of people is about what is the main ask you would have for the new, newish elected government? Um. I think, I think there's a couple of things I learned recently when I, I, I was privileged enough to get onto a leadership course. And I came away with a couple of things that feel right for me and they're little sayings. One is tend to the small. You know, let's just, just, just concentrate on the smallest level we can and do it right there. Then the rest will come from that. So I think my advice or my hope for government is that this initiative that is happening now through primary care networks which is saying, we realise that neighbourhoods are really important, that small, uh, working at the small population level is where change will happen. We really like government to devolve democracy right down to these levels and empower people in communities more with decision making. So my sense is that when I've got autonomy in my job, I'm quite happy, and I'm lucky, I'm senior, I get more autonomy. If we could allow people in communities to have more autonomy, and more decision making, then they'd be more connected to what's going on. Then I think they'd feel healthier and better. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, I think they should do that. And I think they should just help to slow stuff down as well. You know, give us the time to do the work ourselves, trust us. Mm -hmm. Don't go changing the car. You know, they almost pull the engine out of the car on the motorway and switch another one in because mm -hmm. they weren't happy with how it was going. Actually give us a bit more time, you know. We'll get to the destination and we might feel happier as a result by going a bit slower. Yeah, yeah. that's a, a great message, more time. Um, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank you so much for uh, coming on Co-Produce Care Chat. Mm -hmm. I've learned loads about AHSN and I'm sure lots of people will have as, as well. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Sophie.